This podcast is supported by the Rebecca Vassi Trust, a UK-based charity which promotes the art of narrative photography through granting bursary awards to up-and-coming photographers and funding public education projects like this one. This podcast has full editorial independence, and the views expressed in this series are not necessarily those of the Trust. Welcome to Season 2 of the Photoethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number three, we'll be talking with Crystal Ding about learning through discomfort. Born in China and based in the UK, Crystal Ding is a research-led artist who works with photography, writing, personal archives, and machine learning to explore the impact of past trauma and future technological advancement on identity. Her work focuses on the intersections of science, culture, and the individual, and has been published by the BBC, The Guardian, The Telegraph, and more. In 2019, she was awarded the Rebecca Vassi Memorial Award for her work, Yours is Going to be Healed as Well, about genocide survivors in Rwanda. Her current work uses machine learning as a tool for self-expression, and she's interested in issues of embodiment in the machine age. Could you start by telling me just a little bit about the kind of work that you do? Sure. So... I'm a research-led artist working on themes of identity, embodiment, and trauma, uh, with a particular focus on where these things intersect with or are catalyzed by technological advancement. Uh, So at the moment, I've been working on a series called Bits and Pieces, um, using machine learning to recreate self-portrait performances that depict moments of mental health crisis. But in the past, I've worked on uh, genetics. Um, It's around 2017 to 2019. Yeah, that sounds like really interesting work and quite emotionally laden work as well to work on themes of mental health and trauma and also identity and family, I guess, with genetics. Maybe starting with the work that you did in Rwanda, that was yours is going to be healed as well, correct? Is that the the title of it? Yes. And that was made with support from the Rebecca Vassi Trust as well. Is that correct? Could you tell me a little bit about what was that project like and how did you approach it? So I think the one word answers are the project was difficult and I approached it naively. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't imagine that there was any way that you can prepare for a project like that realistically. In a summary of the project itself, spent some time with five different counselling groups of genocide survivors in Rwanda that were run by SURF, which is Survivors Fund and listened in, essentially, to the sessions and then spoke with individuals, captured portraits and landscapes, and and also some handwritten testimonies from the survivors themselves. I think, you know, setting aside the very difficulty of just going through that process, there are things that come up that you don't really, there's, there's no way you can really think about ahead of time. For example, I did as much due diligence as I could, speaking with psychologists and counsellors and with Rwandan colleagues who work at Survivors Fund, But when it came down to it, one of the unexpected outcomes was that an article was published in the BBC and then I received a bunch of emails that were attacking me for, I'm British Chinese and I look Chinese. And that sort of became the target of people's anger against me for making that work, which was, I think, 
an interesting wake-up call because it made me really stop and think about the fact that it's possible to do all your due diligence and yet maybe still be the wrong person to make the work. And I think that was the big mm. lesson I sort of took away from that. I mean, the fact is that in Africa today, China is having a sort of undue and problematic influence. And even if my passport says I'm British, my accent clearly says I'm British, the person that I appear as to them looks very much like people who are not necessarily there with good intentions. So that becomes part of my baggage as a photographer. And we talk about navigating our own baggage, but I actually feel like in that instance, that's not a baggage I can navigate. It's literally my face. And there's very little I can do about that. So I think that threw in a complexity that really I wasn't prepared for. And that's why I say naively that it's something now I think very long and hard about before making work. So it must have been a very difficult experience for sure. You've put that very well, that sometimes it doesn't matter how much due diligence, sometimes just our own positionality in the world and the way that we're perceived by others makes it very hard to do certain types of work. How, I guess, have you you taken that that with you forward? Like, what does that mean maybe for you now after that experience? So I was making the work in 2018, I think, and... The world was very different back then. There was no COVID. And the article on the BBC came out in the midst of all the Black Lives Matter conversations and also the anti-Chinese racism due to COVID and Donald Trump. So it was such a mixed bag of stuff going on in the world for all sorts of people at the time. Yeah. I think I, I've, I'm still trying to untangle it in my head and I'm still not really sure what that looks like. And I, I think perhaps... Perhaps this is cowardice on my part or a kind of regard for my own safety. I've gone much more into work about my own experience. I think not entirely unrelated to that. The feeling of I'm not sure what I have ownership over right now. And like everyone Mm. else, I don't know that I have that much control over anything right now. And so the only boundaries to navigate is my own story. And so I've kind of focused a bit more inwards, I think, partly in response Mm. to that. That's really interesting. That's a trend I've heard a lot from a lot of people. And I found this um, as well with myself and kind of work that I've been doing more. And and I wonder if it's also in part because of COVID, because we are forced to maybe look more immediately at what's closest to us. And in terms of other aspects of your work that you've done as well, dealing quite a bit with mental health. So dealing with trauma or counseling services or identifying, I believe you said mental health crises. Is that, Mm -hmm. did I put that correctly? How do you gain access, I guess, into sort of spaces where these themes are revealed? Because they're very, I guess, sensitive spaces, right? Yeah. One of them just happens to be my own existence. So that one kind of I'm part of by default. But I always go in and I say I'm a patient. I've been a patient for most of my life in one way or another. I have seen counsellors, psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists on and off for the last 10 years And so in a way, I think I go in as someone who has a bit of shared experience, obviously not to the same extent or can't profess to have the same experience as anyone else. But I'm certainly not coming at it as anyone with extra knowledge. I don't have any medical or clinical training. And perhaps that's something that is lacking in my practice. But it's that philosophy of sort of person first, photographer second. I'll approach people as people and then we'll go from there. The work with Survivors Fund, I mean, that was such a sort of roundabout journey. I originally volunteered to run the London Marathon for Network for Africa, which partners with Survivors Fund. And then through that fundraising process, I kind of engaged with them 
quite a lot and realised that I really was finding the work they were doing incredibly valuable and incredibly inspiring. And it felt a bit like after the marathon, oh, that's that then. <laughs> I didn't want that engagement to end there. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, what do I have that I can bring to the table? And that's photography and writing. So I will see if there's a way that we can bring that to the table and take this work further and do something more. You know, because of personal experience, mental health is quite a central theme for me. And also, it's weird to say it's a central theme for me. It's a central theme for everyone right now, I think. Nothing like a pandemic yeah. to put you in front of your own mental health day <laughs> in, day out. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So I really love what you said about person first and photographer second. I think that sometimes that gets a bit lost, doesn't it? But I think that it sounds like you've integrated that even from the outset of how you even conceived of the project, which I think is really admirable. What about in the work on genetics? I'm really interested in that. I think probably because I've started thinking a lot more about my own background and heritage and mental health in my family. I feel like that looking at genetics is also probably very emotive in a way that we don't necessarily think of it as being, we think of it as being quite scientific and clinical, but there's a lot of emotion that goes into questions of identity. How have you found that experience? I feel like you've nailed it. <laughs> that's the, that's, <laughs> that is the takeaway. And I love when people say, I'm really interested in genetics because, and then give their personal reason. And everyone I've ever met has that personal reason. And for everyone I meet, it's different. And I think that's what's beautiful about it as a topic. But you're right, it is incredibly emotive. I guess to give a bit of context of the work, the project is called Genotopia. And it's a book of 23 interviews and photographs and often photographs curated from personal archives, medical documents and things like that of the participants who very kindly shared their stories of why they had DNA testing, what it was they were hoping to gain, what they were exploring, what they found out and how that affected them and that kind of thing. I think when I started it, I didn't realise quite how broad the stories were going to reach. So everything from finding unknown about relatives to unknown about heritage to, you know, BRCA1 gene mutation, genetic illness in the family, even things like fertility treatments and wondering what was the heritage of the father that you've never met and things like that. Just so many stories spiralling out and so quite difficult to navigate in the sense that I wasn't prepared for quite how many different types of circumstance and emotions would be aroused for people. So I think the thing I tried to do, but I think this often runs counter to how people's lives run, was give and spend as much time with each person as I could so that we could unpack as much of their story at whatever pace they wanted to go at, which is honestly just such an incredibly enjoyable experience of getting to know someone and getting to hear their story, the way they tell it and what's important to them. And People have shown me huge family tree diagrams that date to medieval times and things like that. And it's extraordinary to see how much research individual people do into themselves. And I've often been quite bowled over by how in-depth they've gone. For certain people, I think I definitely made a couple of mistakes very early on because the project was born out of my master's programme. And I think initially I hadn't realised how far-reaching it might be able to go. And so I'd spoken to earlier participants saying, this is for my master's project. And then when the audience kind of expanded beyond that, and now the book lives at the Welcome Genome Campus in Cambridgeshire, many people were a lot more uncomfortable with that. And I think that was a big lesson for me 
in really thinking ahead more than you think you need to, to what the life of a project might be over time and kind of mm. preparing for that. I always think to myself, well, over communication has never done anyone any harm, but under communication definitely does. So keeping everyone up to date all the time with every little thing. I'm that annoying person who will email daily with updates, but at least that way, the information, you know, as much as I do about the project that you're involved in. Yeah, that's brilliant. I can imagine that it would be very difficult at the start as well, though, navigating that between not having a clear view or an idea of how far a project could go, but also not over-promising either, not saying, well, this is going to be a big book and it's going to live in this big place. If it doesn't, it's a bit of a balancing act, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. It's sort of like, here are my hopes and dreams for this project. Here is what its immediate destination is. But I think also more broadly, thinking of the answer to the question, who do I want to see it and where do I want it to live in an ideal world? Sort of saying that up front, even if it doesn't get there, because the majority of the time it doesn't get there. But sort of saying that that's what your hopes are for it gives people an idea of where you're trying to take it. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked a lot about your practice being research-led. First of all, could you tell me a little bit more, what does that look like for you? And what, what does that mean to you to be a research-led photographer? It's a, it's a bit of a strange phrase, isn't it? Because I think a lot of photographers would say that that is also what they do. But I think I mean it in the sense that I was talking to Steve McLeod at Metro Imaging once, and I remember saying to him, my process looks sort of like this. I spend two years reading all the books and papers and everything that I can, hoovering up information about a subject. And then I start thinking about what pictures I might want to take or how I might approach the photography side. And he kind of looked at me like, "What? so you don't start making the images until two years after you started thinking about the thing. And I hadn't realised before then that was quite unusual, <laughs> that actually a lot of my fellow photographers, who I think are better photographers, tend to start with taking images <laughs> and that's their way into something. Like they take pictures of stuff that moves something in them and then they figure out what it is that is moved within them. I mean, I waver between thinking of this as just my natural tendency or a real fault of a human being. I tend to come at things more cerebrally first because I find that way easier to access topics than by the making. So essentially, I don't really think about what it is I'm going to produce or what I'm going to make out of anything. I first just spend, and it has been on average about two years, researching to understand a thing to the point where I feel like I can then have conversations about the thing with some level of clarity. And I think perhaps it's because my entire family are scientists. <laughs> There's this sort of obsession with, uh, this is such a loaded phrase in photography, but truth. The idea of trying to get as close as you can to what the thing actually is before you start having something to say about the thing. And I think it's, I'm not a very intuitive photographer in many ways, because I think what are the images I need or how do I want the images to work for what I'm trying to say rather than taking pictures or making pictures and then interrogating the pictures and then taking the pictures further. And I think that's something that I still have a lot to learn on from people who are much better at that than I am. So when you're talking about research, you talked about reading, you also talked about meeting with people, right? So what sources do you go to? Oh, uh... <laughs> I'll start with the AI story in this context, because that's been quite a meandering journey, which took me to, again, quite naively trying to start a startup and host a, a podcast and do various interviews with experts. I think it starts with, I'm interested in a question and it's probably the wrong question. So I'm going to take this question to the British Library, to the internet, to other people who seem to be very smart on Twitter, to wherever I can find the scientific journals that I can just about understand. And I'll dig into this question 
So with AI, that question was, what would machines think of us? Which now that I think about it, is really the wrong question because I was asking it for the wrong reason. And the real reason I was asking it was because I was interested in perspectives that are outside of ours. So that obviously coming from an idea of identity and trauma becomes very useful and has very little to do with actual AI. But yeah, I do seek out experts and people who speak clearly on things. And often I'll just probe them and say, I'm really curious about this thing. I was wondering if I could have a discussion with you. And, and a lot of the times you kind of need a way in to have that discussion with someone because people don't just have conversations, bizarrely. <laughs> Sometimes they do. But I found that it was easier to be able to come to someone with a question and ask for their time when it was attached to a project that was aiming towards some sort of outcome. And so it was always trying to find that sweet spot of where is the point where I have enough of a thing that I can take it to someone who knows more about the thing than I do and then hand it to them and then see what they think of it and see what they have to say. And then I kind of spend those two years in listening and absorbing mode and doing very little on the outside and then just sort of gestating an idea in the background of what might be the output. Mm. No, that's really helpful. I, th I think the way that you explain that would be really helpful for people who maybe aren't as comfortable or aren't as familiar with the research side of things. So I, I think that that was a very useful example. So thank you very much for that. And I guess I want to know, because you said earlier on that despite all the research, despite all of the due diligence you do, several times there have been things that were unforeseen and could not have been planned. And I guess I'd like to know about when things that you didn't prepare for come up? How do you deal with that? It's a really good question, which is why I'm taking a moment on that one. And actually, I think that might be the answer, taking a moment. I feel like if you are in the business of telling stories that are quite often not your own and touch on themes that reach a lot of people, whose stories you don't know, whose emotions you can't necessarily always safeguard, my bottom line is that I'm ready to be wrong. <laughs> At any given moment, I'm ready to be wrong. And I think it's trying to get the speed of spotting something and then sitting on that and then kind of figuring out how to minimize harm and also just adapt to what the new information is. Like, I feel like that's, it's the speed at which you can take on new information that contradicts what you thought was right. That's the thing that I'm trying constantly to hone. Mm because you're going to be wrong, because it's not straightforward, it's not simple, and people are complicated. I think being open to being uncomfortable. <laughs> Again, I'm talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, but I think for me and for many people, that was a really important moment because it made us all really uncomfortable in exactly the right way. Mm. And sitting with that discomfort and not just sitting in there, of course, working on it, working on what that discomfort brings up, I think is really important. I spend a lot of time being very uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess there's so much in that, isn't there? And so much in that that I think we all can learn from and integrate. Because a lot of that discomfort, I guess, comes from an awareness or an increased realization that we're wrong about something or that we don't know everything or that there are things that we've ignored. And this points to just these holes in our understanding. And I think, you know, when you're I'm nearly 30, you know, when you're nearly 30 and you're realizing you have all these holes in your understanding and you made it 30 years and you just had no clue about some really very important things. I find that so funny that the list of things you just described to me sounds incredibly positive. Oh, what a wonderful thing to reach 30 and realize that there are still so many holes in your knowledge. <laughs> because it would be incredibly Absolutely. boring if you knew everything by now. And I feel like that's something that's quite embedded in society. For some reason, we view being wrong or being shown up to be wrong as a really negative thing. But actually, being wrong about something just means that there's something you didn't know and therefore there's stuff you don't know. And that's really exciting. 
Because yeah. it means that there's stuff to constantly absorb and try to make sense of and try to internalize mm. stuff about the world you didn't know before. And you know, I don't really know why we've ended up in this position of making being wrong such a negative thing. Yeah, I think that's very connected in a lot of ways to a lot of the things that I think about when I think about photography ethics and when I think about how we talk about photography ethics and how I think a lot of times conversations get locked in a deadlock uh, instead of a realization that we're all constantly learning and we're all constantly evolving. And if things that I did five years ago would not be the same things I would do now. And that's okay. That's a great thing. You know, it means I'm, I'm evolving. I guess on that note, is there anything that you sort of look back on and, and wish that or think that now you would have, you would do things differently? Oh God, definitely. Oh, so many things. Where do I begin? <laughs> I think when I look back on the Rwanda work, I definitely wish I had taken a much more participatory approach. I mean, I attempted to with the incorporation of the handwritten testimonies, but I think there are photographers who do a much better job of really handing over the editorial control to the people that they're working with. And I think that's something that I would, if I could go back and do it again, is something that I would try and do. But perhaps even a better thing to have done than that would simply be to fund a Rwandan photographer to tell that story or tell the story that they're more interested in in telling, because I do appreciate that you sort of <laughs> become that country that is always in the news because of the genocide. And actually, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on there that has nothing to do with the genocide or ostensibly nothing to do with it. So I think there's a lot of that. There are definitely massive holes that I feel like I'm trying to desperately fill in now. I, I wish I'd done the ethics course. I've started doing philosophy courses online this year, and I am 30. And uh, <laughs> I really wish I'd started doing that when I was a teenager, because I would have spent so much more time on it by now. And engaged with a lot more of those questions by now. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things I wish I'd engaged with earlier because I would have gotten further with them by now. You do seem like someone, though, who's very thoughtful about your practice, even perhaps not having engaged with maybe some of the things that you wish that you'd had maybe more opportunities to engage with sooner. And I wonder, where does that come from for you, the ethical practice and the, the awareness of things and and how you've learned things along the way. Where, where have you gotten those tools? Or, or is it something that has just, like you said, been really innate in your practice and that you, you approach it from a person-centered um, stance? Hmm. I think there's two things. And one thing is sort of cultural. And the other thing is to do with the feedback loops of how people moderate other people's behavior. So to start with the kind of cultural point... As I mentioned, I'm Chinese and my parents are Chinese and they left China shortly after the Cultural Revolution and I came to the UK when I was three. And so I kind of didn't really have things to begin with to take for granted, not in the sense of, you know, material things, but in the sense of what is the assumed default was a very confusing question to me because there was a Chinese version of events and then there was the British version of events and both things were coexisting and I was too small to make sense of them. And so I think essentially, probably from the age of three, I was very confused about what was right or wrong. I remember vividly one time being called out in an assembly because I was not crossing my legs sitting on the floor. And it was because I, no one had ever taught me how to cross my legs, so I didn't know how to cross my legs. And then I got told off for not crossing my legs. And I didn't know enough English to explain that it was because I didn't know how to, not because I didn't want to, or I was trying to be disobedient. And so I remember that moment sticking with me because I was thinking, I feel very much like a wrong has been done to me here, <laughs> but I'm not sure exactly how to unpick that wrong. And so there's a lot of those questions come up because you get stuff wrong a lot <laughs> when you're a migrant and when you're just an outsider of any sort in a situation. 
Um, and then, you know, the English stuff that you go and bring home from school, your parents find really dodgy at home because that's not how the Chinese way of things goes. So I think there was a lot of that from quite early on, which actually, I guess, links with the comment about feedback loops, that people will react negatively sometimes when you do things that they don't like. <laughs> and I think that that's, I mean, we're, we're all supercomputers walking in like sacks of meat. The only way we learn is by attempting a thing and then having other people give us feedback on that thing, negative or positive, which reinforces whether we do more of that thing or not. And so I think that being responsive to people's feedback, and I mean feedback in quite a kind of scientific sense, I think, not feedback as in like you ask someone for feedback and they give you a form, but literally body language, gestures, how they feel or seem to feel when you talk to them or approach them about certain things. Just being super sensitive to that. I'm generally, I think, quite a sensitive person to those things, possibly pathologically, but that, <laughs> <laughs> and not always to my advantage. That means that I'm very, very kind of alert to whether people think I'm doing a good or a bad. <laughs> mm. What kinds of things do you think maybe often don't get recognized as being feedback? Mm, that's a really good question. You know, I'm thinking maybe for other photographers who maybe haven't honed that skill so well, what are things that they wouldn't be as sensitive to? It's a challenging question because it's hard to answer without generalizing. There is a tendency within the photography industry, uh, I hope I'm, I'm not going to get shot for saying this, um, that uh, there's a kind of cult of personality and there's this idea that once you've made it to be one of the gods of photography, you're kind of untouchable. Um, and I do think that that's just quite harmful because you shouldn't ever be able to rise to the god of anything, really. Um, and, and, and you shouldn't be untouchable. There should be no point at which you're untouchable, where you're, you've reached such a height that you can't be critiqued. So I think it's more that that I would think is problematic. And I think people then don't call out people who they perceive as being at the top of the feeding chain. And the ones who do get a lot of flack for it. And it becomes a sort of fight of the individual versus the industry. I've never known how to deal with that or how to get involved with that in a useful way. And I see other people engaging with it and it costs them at a personal mm. level. And that, I think, saddens me. And it's possibly one of the reasons I often I struggle with the idea of a photography industry overall. Like, I don't really know where I fit in relation to that and don't feel comfortable trying to fit in relation to that because I don't feel strong enough. I think that, that idea of feedback loops is really interesting. I think that's a really interesting way of articulating it. I wonder with that cult of personality, if sort of there's almost a multi-layered complicitness in that, you know, in, in sort of the actions that maybe an individual who has risen to that can do things and not get negative feedback. And the people who are regarding it are not giving the feedback and it becomes self-perpetuating, doesn't it, in a way? Yeah, particularly with photography being one of those industries where the number of people trying to get into an ever, ever shrinking slice of pie just means that in an industry where you have a kind of lack of workforce and an oversupply of pie, in this bizarre analogy of laborers and pie, then you don't have that problem as much because everyone is just trying to get a share of it. But in photography, I always feel like there's thousands of photographers trying to get into the ranks of, I don't know what, but some, some nebulous top sphere of photography. And that you have to play along with something, again, I'm not sure what, in order to be accepted into the hallowed tier of, again, I don't know what. I'm having the worst trouble defining any terms at the moment. But I think that's part of it, though. It's that nebulous kind of nature of it is what are you actually trying to get to? 
And it's just very easy to see someone who's made it in a very, usually in a very different time when photography was, you know, at a very economic level, completely different in terms of where we were in society and the need and just market forces to where we are now, which is a very different landscape. And with that in mind, I guess, what advice would you give to someone who was maybe earlier in their career and wanted to pursue something similar to what you've been doing? What do you wish you'd known or what should people know about that career? It's funny to think that I might have a career because I I hardly think of it as a career sometimes, especially since I'm not one of those who's made it into the hallowed thingamajig that I haven't got a name for because I feel like it's more a lifelong exploration that sort of periodically yields a body of work. And the reason I struggle to think of it as a career is because I don't make my living from photography. And I feel like that is a kind of big mark against me or something. But when someone says career, it makes me think that the aspiration is to end up making a living doing the thing that I love. And actually, every time I've tried to do that, it's killed photography for me. And I've not been able to do it because I'm struggling too much on trying to make a living out of it and then, you know, not loving it. And that's not a unique problem. Lots of people have found that. So I choose not to do that. I work full time in a different industry altogether. And I do that on purpose. It's partly because I like to eat. And it's also partly because I want to sort of buy my editorial freedom, which gives me that chance to do those projects that I'm interested in and spend absolutely ages on them longer than anyone would conceive of giving me. I know that, that that is not a model that most people necessarily want or would find attractive. But for weirdos that might be like me and want something like that, for me, it's about keeping the interest alive. The thing that drives me is curiosity and interest in stuff. So it's thinking about what you're interested in, what kind of images you want to make and experimenting with processes, like never ending experimentation with process. I remember arriving at my master's, not having ever done studio photography, not having ever experimented with film. Essentially, all I knew was the digital camera. And then this whole world opened up of all these other things. And I thought, well, well, hang on, I'm doing a master's. Isn't this a bit late in the day to start just messing around with other things? And technically the answer is yes, but also I was never in such a place with so many people who had skills I didn't have. And so I think it's that finding people who know stuff you don't (laughs) and spending time with them. Give them your skills if need be. Get them to teach you their skills and just kind of cross-pollinate in that way and not being afraid of sucking at stuff because I really suck at lots of stuff and that's cool because I'll get better at it if I keep trying to do it and acknowledge that it's okay to be really bad as long as you're trying to get better. Yeah, you know, I think that that's so interesting and so helpful because you talk about it maybe not being desirable to have a day job that pays the bills so that you can pursue the work that's meaningful for you. But that's also something that I hear from a lot of photographers who are pursuing it full time saying it's great to have a day job, you know, it's great to have that security and it's great to have that flexibility to be able to focus on the work that you want. So it it's very, I think, useful to hear both sides of it and to hear Also how having that security can, it sounds like, correct me if I'm way overstepping, but it sounds like can also lead to a sense of imposter syndrome as well, that, well, is it a career? Is it not a career? You know, what what is my photography in in my life? I think that you're absolutely right about the imposter syndrome. And I think that it's almost like a, I want to call it a justified imposter syndrome, because one of the things that you do miss out on is all of those friends of mine who've spent years assisting and interning and learning off masters of craft are so much better at the craft than I will ever be. 
And I think I really missed out on that. And there's a sense of regret around that because I look at some of the work they make and it's astounding. And it reaches levels of skill that I don't even understand because I just haven't put in the man hours and haven't spent that time just honing the craft. And I have a lot of respect for that. Mm, that's really interesting and useful as well, for sure. I feel like there's also that layer, isn't there, as well, of you talked earlier about having too many people for the available pie. And that's also maybe another element of how we think about our own careers going forward in the photography industry and what that looks like and what it can or can't look like. Because like you said, I think that photography industry has definitely changed shape a lot in the past couple decades. And maybe what was possible 30 years ago is not possible now for a lot of photographers. I like to ask everyone, what does photography ethics mean to you? Or what does it mean to be an ethical photographer? I'm going to end up repeating myself here, but I really do think it's just being prepared to be wrong and being prepared to be uncomfortable and being okay with being uncomfortable and digging into your discomfort to find out why you're uncomfortable and addressing those holes that we were talking about where you lack the understanding that you perhaps might be better for having. I think it's a constant work in progress. No one gets it right because it's hard, but I think that that means that the effort should be constant and should be always in the background, um, sometimes in the foreground. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, just not, not avoiding the discomfort, which is easier said than done for sure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photo Ethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Pete Brook on thinking about images. If you're enjoying this podcast, why don't you check out our online courses? We've developed a series of three online courses designed specifically for photojournalists and documentary photographers. We discuss questions like, how do we achieve accuracy in our photographs? What's the relationship between power and consent? And when, if ever, should we intervene? These online courses come with perks, like access to an online community group for discussion and Q&A opportunities with me, the course leader. Enroll today at www.photoethics.thinkific.com or go to www.photoethics.org and click online courses. This podcast was edited by Ellie Gascoigne.